Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he had meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly. <coughs> she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come to, with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he, who opened the eyes of the blind man, also have kept this man from dying? This is the word of the Lord. 
Has somebody ever let you down? Now, I don't mean when your husband forgets to take out the garbage. I mean when something big happens, when you're in a really, really tough situation and help is nowhere to be found. And when those who, who could help don't come. The wagon train is surrounded by fierce Apaches, but the cavalry doesn't come as expected. The middle-aged father is waiting for a heart transplant, but the heart doesn't get donated as expected. The child is being beaten up by bullies, but the teacher doesn't step in as expected. The house is burning down, but the fire department doesn't show up as expected. That's the kind of situation that we're looking at today. Jesus' beloved friend lies dying, but Jesus doesn't come as expected leaves everybody full of questions. Maybe the Lord hasn't stepped in to fix your circumstances and it's left you full of questions as well. But as we see the responses of of people to, to God's providence in this narrative, it's likely that we'll see something of ourselves here as well. If the Lord tarries, we're all going to face trials at some point in our lives. Listen carefully, and you just might learn something about the Lord's ways that will be an anchor for your soul in the trials of life. So this narrative before us is a narrative about death, but it's also a narrative about life. Jesus begins the narrative by telling us that a certain man named Lazarus was ill. Now, Lazarus has not previously been mentioned in John's Gospel account. In fact, the only time that he's mentioned in the Bible is briefly in the next chapter. Lazarus is from Bethany. It's about two miles from Jerusalem on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha, and from what we read about them, it seems that they were a wealthy, prominent family. Mary and Martha are mentioned in Luke chapter 10, where Mary sits at Jesus' feet listening to him, but while Martha is anxiously serving others. Now John tells us here in verse 2 about an event that won't happen until the next chapter when Mary anoints Jesus' feet with expensive ointment and wipes his feet with her hair. But first let's look at Jesus' response to the situation. We'll look at Jesus' response to the illness of Lazarus in verses 3 to 6. The sisters send word to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, evidently, they were disciples of Jesus and close friends of his. And it makes perfect sense then that they would seek his help. They had probably seen Jesus heal others, and they certainly knew what he was capable of. They had probably even heard about what had happened in Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus had healed the centurion's servant without even being there. And they were thinking, if Jesus would heal perfect strangers, surely he would heal a beloved friend. But when Jesus hears it, he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And it seems likely that this is the message that was sent back to the sisters. Now, this response is surprising for those who don't know how the story ends and could easily lead someone to the wrong conclusions if they're not thinking about the big picture. 
It might have left the sisters thinking that Lazarus wasn't actually going to die. It might have left them thinking that Jesus wasn't going to come at all. Now think about their disappointment. Their beloved, Jesus' beloved friend, their brother, was dying. And this is the only message we have that Jesus sent. But any disappointment that they felt now would soon be compounded when Lazarus actually died and still Jesus didn't come. But Jesus didn't ever say that he wasn't coming. He also didn't say that Lazarus wouldn't die, only that his illness does not lead to death. Jesus was looking at the big picture. He knew what he was going to do, and he knew why he was going to do it. Jesus was seeking the glory of God. And this would provide an opportunity for God the Father to glorify his Son. As R.C. Sproul explains, the point of the New Testament teaching, both here and the epistles, is that the Father is glorified through the glory of the Son. So as Christ is revealed as the Son of God and exalted, God the Father is glorified also. So in the glorification of the Son comes the glorification of the Father. And Jesus' response here is similar to what he said to his disciples in John chapter 9 when they had asked him if the man had been born blind because of his sin or because of the sin of his parents. Jesus said it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He was saying that the man was born blind so that God would be glorified in his healing. Now just think about that for a minute. God had caused this man to be born blind and to live a life of abject poverty so much so that he was was forced to beg all the way into his adulthood so that God would be glorified. But he also did it for the man's good. You can guarantee that any difficulty that the man faced during his blindness was swallowed up in the joy of being healed by Jesus, but even infinitely more in being saved by Jesus. Now, we need to be really careful when we consider the circumstances of life and where they come from. Some people attribute the problems of life to random chance. Others are quick to blame the devil. But even if the devil is behind some problem that you face, who is sovereign? God or Satan? Now think about Job for a minute. God gave Satan license to destroy Job's property, his family, and his health, but Satan could go no further. God would not allow Satan to touch Job's life. Furthermore, in the testimony of Scripture, we find repeatedly that that trials are attributed directly to God and to no one else. Everything that we face is ultimately either directly caused by God or allowed by God. To say anything else is to say that God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, he ceases to be God. 
You heard last week about Jonathan's testimony of almost dying from Lyme disease. And Jonathan didn't blame the devil or some random tick. He said that God gave him Lyme disease. But notice how Jonathan also didn't get angry with God. He told us how, of course, he didn't respond perfectly through the ordeal, but ultimately he came to see the disease as a blessing of providence from the Lord. Think about William Cooper's great hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, where he says, Behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. Now, I've said this before, but there's, this is one time that I actually think a modern addition or a modern change to that hymn has actually been better, where, where it's been changed to say, Behind a frowning providence, faith sees a smiling face. We have to look at our circumstances through the eyes of faith. It is only when we see what's happening in our lives through the eye of faith that we will be able to see clearly. God is sovereign and loving and wise, and our circumstances don't change that. God never changes. Never. So all things, all things really do work out for God's glory, and for our good. Now, so often, and I don't think I'm overstating it to say that almost always when we pray for deliverance from a situation, we're more concerned about getting out of the difficulty that we're in than we are concerned about the glory of God and that God would be glorified through us and in us through that difficulty. We're often more motivated by escaping the pain of our circumstances than that God's name be magnified through our circumstances. Brothers and sisters, if we are motivated by anything above the glory of God, it is idolatry in our hearts. It is the idol of comfort. We seek our own comfort above God. Now, there's not necessarily anything wrong with wanting a hard situation to be over, but we too easily forget what it's all about. We forget that we exist for God, not the other way around. When Jesus responds as he does in verse 4, it might leave people wondering if he really did love Lazarus and his sisters. But John tells us quite clearly in verse 5 that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Then we have verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It really doesn't sound like the response to the illness of a beloved friend. It seems like an oxymoron. Verse 5 doesn't seem to go with verse 6. Jesus loved them, so he stayed two days longer. Now the translators of the NIV picked up on the seeming incompatibility, so they translate verse 6, Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there two more days. But the Greek doesn't say yet. It says, though, so. It says, therefore. So what's being said here is that, that Jesus' delay was motivated by love for Lazarus and his sisters. But if you don't know how the story ended, this would not make any sense. These don't seem like the actions of someone who loved them. 
But sometimes the most loving thing that we can do doesn't seem very loving at the time. A couple of weeks ago, Josh and Larissa were telling us about, <coughs> about how difficult Reuben's birth was. And in the, in the middle of the process, the doctor called Josh out of the room and said that if, if she doesn't have enough strength, if she doesn't get this baby out now, both she and the baby are going to die. So Josh went back into the, into the, the room as a drill sergeant. And I mean, Josh is a big guy, and he was, he was saying, push, 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 where, where Larissa wanted comfort. She wanted, she wanted peace. She wanted words of, of soothing. It did not, she was telling us how it did not seem very loving to her at the time, but it was the most loving thing that Josh could do for her, out of love for her and love for their child. It might not have seemed very loving for Jesus to delay, but again, we have the, the testimony of verse 5. Jesus did love them, and we're going to see it powerfully. So brothers and sisters, rest assured, when Jesus delays in answering our prayers, or even when he answers our prayers with a no, we can be confident that he has a reason. He knows our situation and he knows us infinitely better than we do. Now, I know this, this wasn't a life and death situation, but, but for me, for about 15 years, I had the earnest desire to get married. And I watched friend after friend after friend get married. And I was still sitting on the shelf. And, and there were times that I questioned, as, as, Lord, have, have I done something wrong that you're withholding your blessing from me? This, this betrayed a, a, a false... Well, we do need to ask some of those questions. But there, there was a big picture that I was failing to miss. I didn't know how the story was going to end. I didn't know that the Lord was going to bless me with Jane. But even if the Lord never blessed me, with marriage? Would that make God cease to be good? I know a number of couples who have struggled with, with miscarriage and infertility. We've struggled with that. And some of these couples have never been able to have a child. Does that mean that God is not good? Does that mean that God is not loving and sovereign and wise. No, it means that God has something better for them. Now, of course, they might not be thinking about it as better when they, when they see all their friends having big families. But it is God who defines what is good. No good thing will he, will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. But we do not need to conclude that because somebody's not being blessed in a certain way, that they are not walking uprightly. 
God is our Father. He is our Father in heaven. He is the Father of lights with with whom is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good thing comes from his sovereign and loving hand. And if he withholds something, it means that it's good that he withhold it. need now to consider the reaction of of the disciples from verses 7 to 16. After two more days had passed, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples are shocked and concerned. So they said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? The events of chapter 10 were very fresh in their minds. The Jewish leaders wanted to stone Jesus for, for blasphemy when he had said, I and the Father are one, and they wanted, to arrest when he, they wanted to arrest him when they said, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And Jesus had escaped from their hands and went across the Jordan. So did he really want to go back to Jerusalem? Didn't he know what was waiting there for him? Jesus knew exactly what was waiting there for him. But this event is leading to things that are immeasurably greater even than what happens with Lazarus. What the Pharisees, with the, with the Jesus, what, sorry, what Jesus does here after the death of his friend will set the grinding wheels of the Pharisees in motion and will ultimately lead to Jesus' own death very shortly afterwards. So knowing Perfectly what was coming, Jesus said to his disciples, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus is and was the light of the world. And he knew that he had an allotted time to fulfill the work that he was to do. Repeatedly, we've seen that when the Jewish leaders wanted to to kill him, he escaped because his time had not yet come. And the time for his death still hadn't come, but it was coming soon. So in verse 11, Jesus said to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Yet again, Jesus is being ambiguous. And yet again, they didn't get it. They said, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. They thought that Jesus meant that Lazarus was merely convalescing. But John tells us that Jesus was speaking of his death. Then Jesus says to his disciples plainly, Lazarus has died. Jesus supernaturally knew what had happened. And he continues, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And here we see another motivation for Jesus' delay. For your sake, that you may believe. With the time that it would take to travel back, it would be four days before Jesus, four days after Lazarus' death, before Jesus would arrive at the tomb. Now, Jewish tradition held that, that after death, the spirit of a body would hover around the body for three days. But then after the three days, when when decomposition started to set in, that the spirit would then leave. But that if somebody was, was 
was somehow raised up again within that three-day period, it would be considered a resuscitation, not a resurrection. So by waiting until Lazarus was good and dead before going to wake him, no one would say, no one could say that this was merely a resuscitation. Jesus was glorifying God and grounding the faith of his disciples, but not just his disciples. He was also grounding the faith of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, as we'll see those, some of those Jewish witnesses. But then in verse 16, Thomas speaks with a boldness and a misunderstanding that we often equate with Peter. He says, let us go also that we may die with him. He was probably speaking what was on many of their minds, but he still didn't get it. He didn't understand what Jesus had said about this being for the glory of God. Now let's consider the response of Martha from verses 17 to 27. As we've already seen, when Jesus arrives, Lazarus has already been dead in the tomb for four days. And as was common in, in those days, we'll see this was actually the case here, that, that the tomb was actually a cave with a large stone rolled in front of it to seal the entrance. Lazarus' lifeless body had been placed in that cave. And this was a, was a prominent family. And many had come from the surrounding town to comfort Martha and Mary. And along with those who are genuinely grieving would have likely been professional mourners whose, whose paid job it was, was to cry with them and I guess to prime the pump of grief with others. But in verse 20, when, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary remained seated in the house. Now all kinds of speculation has been been made as to what was actually happening in the hearts of these grieving sisters. It would be helpful to have been an eyewitness of, of, these, of this conversation so that we could hear the tone of Martha's voice. But we have to rely solely on the testimony of Scripture. Where Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now we see something of her character in Luke chapter 10 that she was busy serving instead of simply listening to Jesus, but these don't seem to be words of condemnation, but words of faith. Now she doesn't understand why, that much is evident, but she knows that Jesus could have kept her brother from dying, and she also knows the unique relationship that the father had with the son. And that the father would answer every request that the son made. Now some propose that she's saying that Jesus could even have raised Lazarus from the dead. And, but, but that really can't be the case because we, we see both from her immediate response and also from the doubt of verse 39. That she wasn't thinking in these terms. So Jesus tells her, your brother will rise again. This is yet another example of what D.A. Carson calls a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. Jesus here could be referring to the general resurrection, which is how Martha viewed it, but he's saying so, so much more. Martha responds 
saying that, that Lazarus will rise again on the resurrection of the last day. Now, now these, these things, that the, the concept of the, of the resurrection was, was hotly contested and hotly debated during this time. The Sadducees, on the one hand, denied that there was a resurrection while the Pharisees affirmed it. Now, the Pharisees got at least that part right. There will be a general resurrection of, of the dead on the last day, as a resurrection of eternal life to those whose faith is in Jesus, but eternal punishment for those who reject him. And this is where the Pharisees obviously got it wrong. And now Jesus proceeded with the fifth of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Remember, he's intentionally using the term that would have evoked memories and thoughts to, to the Yahweh in the Old Testament because Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. R.C. Sproul paraphrases Jesus here saying that I hold the keys of life and death. I am the foundation, the power of life itself, and I have the power to raise dead people from the grave. I don't just teach the resurrection. I am the resurrection. I am the very power of God unto life. The resurrection is not just something that will occur on the last day, but is an event that has already begun in Jesus and is present. And believing in the resurrection is therefore a matter of believing in him. Herman Ritterboss says that this pronouncement and this whole chapter is an echo and realization of what was said in John 5.25. Please turn with me there in your Bible. John chapter 5, verse 25. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. We are about to see this being fulfilled in in a, in a natural, physical way. But that ultimately points to the spiritual reality, and it's a preview of verses 26 to 29. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of life. Of judgment. And Jesus asks Martha, Do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that I grant eternal life? Do you believe in me? I need to ask you the same question. Do you believe this? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, not just as a set of of presuppositions and ideas, 
But do you believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life? Is your faith in him and in him alone? Have you turned from your sin and are you trusting in Jesus Christ? That he lived the life you could never live and he died the death that you deserved to die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Martha replied, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And Martha here outstripped the Pharisees, the religious leaders of her time, in her theological understanding. She believed in Jesus. But now let's briefly consider the response of Mary from verses 28 to 32. Martha then went and called Mary privately, saying, The teacher is here and is calling for you. Now, this actual request is not recorded, but that doesn't mean that it didn't take place. Mary quickly rose and went to meet Jesus. And he wasn't yet in the village, but was still in the place where he had met with Martha. And the Jews who were there consoling her saw her departure and followed her, thinking that she was going to the tomb to grieve. But when Mary reached Jesus, she fell at his feet. She says the same thing. She starts out by saying the same thing that, that Martha had said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But this is where her response is different from that of Martha. As Gerald Borchardt explains, Mary expressed her loss differently from Martha. Mary's tears have, in fact, taken the place of most of Martha's words. Still, we mustn't read too much into her response here. Just because she doesn't make the same profession of faith as Martha doesn't mean that the faith isn't there. She will display her faith clearly enough, again without words, in John chapter 12, where she is again at Jesus' feet, anointing them with expensive perfume and wiping them with her hair. At Jesus' feet was a common place for Mary. She was also there in, John t- in Luke chapter 10, 39, sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching. What better place is there to be than at the feet of Jesus? Finally, let's consider the response of Jesus himself from verses 33 to 37. When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, English translations don't really do a very good job of translating this. Deeply moved is is too soft of a term. Outside the Bible, the Greek word commonly referred to the snorting in anger of a horse. This is also reflected in the Bible where it commonly refers to indignation. This isn't mere sympathy. Jesus isn't just sad because Mary and the other mourners are sad. Jesus is greatly agitated. But here, uh, greatly troubled doesn't get it either. 
The Greek says that Jesus agitated himself. Beloved, our God is no impassive God. God is not a robot. Although he never changes, God feels, and God feels deeply, passionately. But don't get, get lulled into, the, into the, the, the misunderstanding that Jesus is just sad here. Jesus is angry here. John Hutchinson says that Jesus was gazing into the skeleton face of the world and tracing everywhere the reign of death. The whole earth to him was but the valley of the shadow and de of death. And in these tears which were shed in his presence, he saw that the ocean of time rose waters of deep woe, are brackish with the salt of human tears. And then we have what you know in verse 35 is the shortest verse of the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. But again, this is not mere grief. This is Jesus staring down the face of an enemy, a vile enemy, the enemy of death that has caused such misery throughout the history of mankind ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the knowledge of the of good of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil death is an enemy and a powerful enemy and it is the last enemy to be defeated bb warfield says it is death that is the object of his wrath and behind him Behind death was him who had the power of death, whom he had come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage. His soul was held by rage. And the Jews who were standing by said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? And next week we're going to see what Jesus does. Next week we're going to see the full response of Jesus to the death of his beloved friend. But beloved, don't judge the story until you have heard the end. Maybe you are in the midst of a profound trial at this very moment. Don't think with a faithless heart that God is going to let you down. God has never let anyone down. Turn your Bible, please, to, to Romans chapter 8. Verse 31. 
What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And look down at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing, not even an enemy as powerful as death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Beloved, whatever it is you are facing, whatever it is you will face, if you are in Christ, you can be sure. You can be sure that you are safe in the arms of your loving God who loves you so much that he killed his own son for you. Beloved, don't look at your circumstances with doubting eyes. Look with the eyes of faith. Consider your circumstances in the light of the gospel. God has never let anyone down, and he never, he never will let anyone down. God is faithful. And he will be faithful to you. Let's pray together.